Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this time that we have every single week to come together as a family and to jump into your word and see how we can change and see how our lives can be impacted to look more and more like Christ and how that bonds us closer together as a family in Christ, but that bonds us closer to you and our walk with you. So we want to walk away from here changed people today. So speak to us powerfully through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we really need to start off with a diagnostic question. What is it that's infecting our families? And the reason we have to start off with a diagnostic question, because if I go straight to prescribing a solution, if, I don't, if we don't rightly uh, address the underlying cause, that solution's not going to do any good. It's like when you go to the doctor's office. When you walk in the door, the doctor doesn't immediately write you a prescription. If they do, you should run. That's not a good doctor. I can suggest some better ones. But they go in, and first they take a, a medical history. Then they take your vitals. Then they run some tests. And once they have a proper diagnosis, then they can prescribe a, a treatment. So for us, we need to rightly understand what is it that's affecting our families? What is that foe that's holding our families back from where they should be? Well, our society has an answer, and it would say this. The foe is our circumstances. If we could just change our bad circumstances, our families would flourish. If we had more money in the bank, a better job, a bigger house, a longer vacation, a more affectionate spouse, if the circumstances of my life could change, I would be happier. And if I'm happier, then my family would be healthier. Our circumstances are the foe that's in the way of us having a flourishing family. Our circumstances are the villain. But you know, I think scripture would say that there's a very different foe. There's a, different, there's a very different barrier that's holding us back. Scripture says it's not our difficult circumstances, but a lot of the times it's our deficient character that's the greatest foe to a flourishing family. The reason so many families aren't flourishing is not because we're facing more difficult circumstances than ever before. That's simply not true. But increasingly, we're living in a culture that has no character to overcome those circumstances and those barriers when we're faced with them. There's a crisis of character in our culture because people are rejecting the truth of God's word and instead constructing a worldview that's predicated on the idea that happiness and flourishing is going to come from me being able to do whatever it is that I want in my life. Self-centeredness is championed, and sexual immorality, and all these other things are, are on every turn. And when we live in a culture where self-centeredness and immorality are, are the things that a family is built upon, it's not going to be a flourishing family. And sadly, a lot of Christians, a lot of churches are not immune to this crisis. There's a, a crisis of character within our churches as well. You see, a lot of Christians have been acting a lot more like a thermometer in our culture than a thermostat. And think about that for a second. What's the difference between the two? Well, a thermometer just reflects the temperature of the environment it's in. As it gets colder, the thermometer goes down. It gets hotter, it goes up. It just reflects that. And Christians, a lot of Christians have been reflecting our culture as it grows more and more immoral, more and more uh, away from the character Christ wants us to have, we just have been slipping down with it. But instead, we need to be thermostats. What does that have the power to do? Well, when you go to your home and you adjust your thermostat when we're having these zero-degree days out and putting it to 60, if you're a cheapskate like me, maybe 65 if, you know, you can afford the bill. 
maybe seven, maybe, okay, maybe seven, I don't know what, what you guys do, but so you adjust it, and what does that do? It changes the environment of the house to the temperature it should be. When God's word, he gives us the temperature. He gives us the ideal setting for human flourishing, for families to flourish. And we need to be setting and adjusting our lives to that. It's like the human body. When our temperature is at 98.6, the body functions exactly as it's intended to. As soon as the temperature goes up or down, the entire body suffers. When we go up or down from the character that God outlines for us in Scripture, every aspect of our lives will suffer, including our families and our marriages. So if we're taking something away from our text today, it really needs to be this simple idea. We need to realize that our character will either make or break our families. We need to realize that our character will either make or break our families. The greatest way that we can help our families is by reflecting Christ-like character in every aspect of our lives. I've used that word character a lot, so I want to give you a, just a working definition of what that means. When we use that word character, it's really uh, the idea of living out God's calling to reflect the attitudes and actions of Christ in every area of our lives. Living out God's calling to reflect the attitudes and actions of Christ in every area of our lives. So this morning, let's take our spiritual temperatures. Let's look at how closely our lives are aligning to the Christ-like character that he commands and desires for our lives. And also, as we're jumping into this, I, I want to encourage all of us not to do something that I, I heard a pastor once call an L-shaped amen. So where you say, oh man, amen, that is awesome, preach it for my wife, right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what my husband needs to hear. As we're taking our temperature, we have our thermometers and we're running around trying to check everyone else's spiritual temperature other than our own. But let's resist that urge and let's look at the text and say, how does this need to change me? So then, mind, let's pop open our Bibles to Galatians 5 and you can follow along as I read aloud starting in verse 16. It says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So in this passage, we see a lot of discussion about character there. Christ-like character. We see a mandate for Christ-like character. We see our motivation for why we need to be having that character. And then we see the method for how we can start to cultivate that character. Let's start in verses 16 and 18 and look at that, that mandate. Why do we, the, the command from God to have this character. He says here in verse 16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. This is an expectation. 
Paul here is describing two conflicting desires that reside within the heart of every single believer. There's the desires of the, of the spirit and there's the desires of the flesh. And they are at war with one another. They're battling each other. And I don't have to convince you of this because you feel it all the time if you're a believer. You know that tension. It feels like there's a, a wrestling match going on in your heart where there's two thing, people that are opposed to each other trying to take the other one down and pin them, right? That's, that's what it feels like as a Christian. We've got these warring desires. And we feel these every moment where we have a choice of, am I going to exhibit Christ-like character in this moment? Or am I going to compromise my character and do what's easy and sinful and tempting right now. So I walk through the door after a long day of work, and the first thing out of my spouse's mouth is a complaint or a cutting remark. Am I patient and gracious, or do I have the perfect zinger that I can throw right back and cut them down the size? Well, what do I choose? Or it's my day off, right? It's your day off, and it's been a crazy week for you. It's been absolutely nuts. You just want to sleep in more than anything. But your kids wake you up at 6 in the morning wanting you to make pancakes. And then from the rest of the day on out there, they are fighting. They're at each other's throat. There's tears. There's all these different things. And are you going to be patient and calm and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to parent the way I should be today? Or are you just going to lose control and say, enough, like always, and blow up at, at your family? When you're at the gym or watching something on TV and someone's appearance other than your spouse's catches your eyes? Are you going to take a second look? Are you going to start thinking lustful thoughts? Are you going to choose to guard your thoughts and your heart? Or when you sin against those that you love, do you have the humility to go up to them and say these three important words, I'm so sorry? Or do you think, well, they knew I, I really didn't mean any of that and they'll just get get over it. I don't need to say that. And our pride wells up within us. What do we see in our lives? Do we see a pattern of Christ-like character or do we see a pattern of compromise? And the sad reality is a lot of us are okay with compromising our character in our lives because we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. We look around at the culture around us and say, yeah, I'm not the perfect guy. I'm not the perfect girl. I'm, I, I know I've got my issues, but compared to the culture I live in, I think I'm doing pretty, pretty good. Or even worse, maybe we look around in the auditorium and we think, man, I know what's going on in that marriage. I know what's going on in this family, and mm, we've got some issues, but I think we're pretty cream of the crop here. I think we're doing pretty good. So this, this sermon's really for, for all of them. But the reality is when we look at God's word, Nowhere does he tell us to be comparing ourselves horizontally. He says, compare your character to Christ and then see how you're doing. We need to compare ourselves not horizontally, but compare ourselves to the this fruit of the Spirit, to the, the character of Christ that we see in this passage. And when we realize that, we realize that we cannot be complicit with any degree of compromise in our, in our lives. When we become disciples of Christ, everything is on the table for God. We have to give it all up. And he has plans to radically transform every single aspect of our lives if we allow him. And that's something that we use a, a big fancy word called sanctification to describe. But basically that means the process of looking more and more like Christ and less and less like the old sinful person I used to be. That change that happens in us. And as Christians, we can't brush aside that mandate. We need to be seeking out our sanctification and saying, I want to look more and more like Christ. But a lot of us try to push aside this mandate 
I think that's for the valedictorians of the Christian class. How do I get by with just C's and get my degree, right? C's get degrees and hear that in college, right? I'll leave that sanctification stuff for the valedictorians. Where God says, no, this is something I desire for every single person who professes to be my child. Where there's spiritual life, there will be spiritual fruit. It's the evidence of that life. But notice within this passage also, there is a mandate, but immediately it's paired with hope. It says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's not saying there, pick yourselves up by your bootstraps and just be strong enough on your own. He's saying, I'm giving you the Spirit. I'm giving you the power. I'm giving you the strength so you can have this change. You're not going to do it through your own strength. You're going to rely on the power that God is giving us. So immediately, whenever there's a mandate, we also see the power that God gives us to always live that out. So in this passage, Paul gives us that mandate, but he also quickly moves to a motivation for why we should be building Christ-like character in our lives. And we really see that in verses 19 through 23. Because in this section, Paul is painting two very different portraits of two very different lifestyles. He's saying, here's what the person who's living by the flesh looks like, and here's the person who lives by the Spirit and what their lives will be defined by. And as you start to look through those lists, guess what? It kind of motivates us to want to be the person that's bearing the fruit of the Spirit, because that life is going to be so much better than a life that's defined by the things that are described by the works of the flesh. And that's so important that we get that real look at it because our, our flesh, our sinful uh, desires, they are the master of false advertising. Sin makes itself seem so appealing and so wonderful. And it, it doesn't tell you all the terrible consequences and side effects of it. It was like this one time I was... Um, I was over in London, uh, and we were doing a backpacking trip across the UK, and we were trying to find a place to stay. And we found this really cheap place in a great location in London, and it was just astronomically cheap. And we were looking at the pictures of it, and we thought, this is too good to believe. Well, guess what? It, it was too good to believe. So we show up, and, and no one's there to let us in, so we're stuck on the streets of London for four hours. And then we finally get in, and I wish I could have slept on the streets of London because of how d and disgusting this room was. Like, it, it looked like the bedding hadn't been changed in months. The, the carpet was matted down. There was, like, smears on the wall. I couldn't even walk in the bathroom. It was disgusting. I, I'm looking at the pictures on my phone, and I'm like, this, this is not the same place. When was this taken? 55 years ago? Like, what, what's going on? It was disgusting. Well, I had been deceived because the advertisement was way better than the experience. That's exactly what our flesh and what sin does every single time. A lot of the times we're tempted to believe that a life of flesh is better than a life of faith, but let's just flush these out and you can make the decision for yourself. Our takeaway from these verses really is simple. It's this. We need to see that sin is the breaker of every broken life and broken family. Sin is the breaker of every broken life and every broken family. Just listen to the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. A life that's controlled by sexual addiction. A life that's been polluted and, and that's all that consumes your thoughts. There's a, a perverseness of that to where it's not what God intended it to be, but now it's just consuming your life. That, that's what this would lead to. Idolatry, to where my worth, my value is in this idol. And when that idol lets me down, because every idol always will, my life feels like it's over because I've lost the meaning and worth of my life. Enmity, a life that's marked by hatred, and being hostile with others. Strife, 
Who wants a, a life that's marked by strife, that's bitter disagreement and conflict, jealousy, a life that's never content or happy because I'm always jealous of everything that happens to everyone else, and I want that for myself because it's all about me. Fits of anger. I'm always on edge. I'm short-fused. I'm blowing up all the time. I just can't control the rage inside of me. Rivalries, dissension. There's constant quarreling and bickering with everyone around me, and I'm known as being the argumentative person in the office that everyone runs away from when it's time for lunch because no one wants to invite me. Envy. I'm never content. There's always something else that I think that I need to make me happy, and then I get it, and I'm still not happy, so I'm looking for something else. And drunkenness, right? How many turning to alcohol, drugs, or something else to medicate the emptiness and the pain inside of us? Now, when those are the top descriptors of our lives, does that sound like a desirable and satisfying life? Or how about this? If that's the character of your family, do you think your family is going to be flourishing and thriving? Absolutely not. Families are breaking apart every single day because of the works of the flesh. In epidemic proportions, marriages are ending in divorce because of sexual immorality, because of pornography, because of adultery. Families are devastated by parents idolizing their careers, their comfort, their achievements, their possessions over everything else in their lives. Families crumble when conversations with each other are marked by bickering and bitter and cutting remarks. Family members are, are hurt every time someone has a fit of anger and abuses them, whether that's physically, verbally, or emotionally. Kids are devastated and provoked to jealousy when parents are, are being divisive and favoring one child or the other, and, and a kid is thinking, man, why can't I ever seem to do anything right in my parents' eyes? I just want to hear that my dad's proud of me, that my mom loves me. And how many families in, in our area are being devastated every single day because of drugs and alcohol, and all sorts of other addictions. We have to realize that our character will either make or break our families. For far too many families, our character is breaking them. So we have to reject the deception of sin. A life of gratifying our sinful desires will not make our lives better. It's false advertisement. Read the fine print. Sure, you might get to make the decisions for your life of what you want to pursue, what's right and wrong. You get to be the God of your own life, but it will not make your life better. It will leave your life broken because sin breaks everything it touches. It breaks our relationships with each other. It breaks our relationships with our, our spouse, with our kids. And worst of all, in this passage, we see that it breaks our relationship with God. Look at the end of verse 21. As I warn you, as I warned you before, people, people who are living in a pattern of the works of the flesh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. There will be a brokenness in their relationship with God, and when they pass, they will not spend eternity with God. There's no weightier motivation to accept God's call for a life of faith than the warning of what happens to those who live a life of flesh. Our relationship with God will be broken, not just now, but for all of eternity and instead of inheriting the kingdom of God, they'll inherit God's punishment and wrath and, and just anger. So we need to realize that there's a better way that we can live our lives. There really is. If you're tired of living in the flesh, then see there's a satisfying way that you can live, and it's allowing Christ to be the center of our life. It's a life that's marked by the fruit of the Spirit, that's being transformed by the work of the Spirit in our lives. And in these next verses, we see a list that looks completely different than the list that we just went through. 
Just visualize what a life bearing this Christ-like fruit would look like. It's joyful. Or it's loving, I'm sorry. It's loving. It's loving. A life that is now able to love other people sacrificially. It's not a selfish love. It's a self-sacrificing love that says, I'm going to put the good of other people first. I'm going to be empathetic. I'm going to be able to be the spouse, to be the father, to be the mother that I've always wanted to be. And genuinely put others' needs before my own. A life that would be loving. A life that's joyful. A life that's joyful. A life that our circumstances are no longer the fuel for our happiness. But even in the most difficult of circumstances, there is a resilient and almost defiant joy that won't leave our lives because my, my possessions, my circumstances, they don't, they don't mean that much to me. Christ is the anchor. Christ is the foundation of my life, and nothing can remove that. It's joyful. Not only that, it's peaceful. A life that's free from anxiety and fear. How many of us would want that? I know I do. It's peaceful because it's learned that I don't have control of my life. As long as I try to keep the reins and do everything exactly how I want, I'm going to be frustrated and disappointed because I'm not in control. It's giving up the illusion of self-dependence and saying, God, I am totally dependent on you and I trust that you are good and your plan is best. It's patient. A life where people are no longer sparks that cause me to explode. A life that's free from yelling at my spouse. A, a life that's free from shaking my fist in anger at the people that, that drive awful when the, snow, the roads get covered in a little bit of snow, right? It's a life free from, from that where people are no longer barriers in my life, but blessings. See, people no longer as a barrier to my happiness, but a blessing that God has given me. It, it's a life that would be kind. A life that's opposite of being entitled and egocentric. It's kind. It gets excited about serving other people. It gets excited about sacrificing and doing something awesome for them. It's something that would be good. Goodness is very similar to integrity. It means that this person is genuine in, in a world of, of hypocrisy. It's life free from wearing masks. I'm the same person at work, at home, at church. I'm, good. I, I'm, I'm the same. It's faithful. How many of us want faithful friends and faithful spouses? A person that lives up to their word even when life gets difficult, even when they're tempted to give up on that. It's faithful. It's gentle. This would be a life that's marked by meekness. As we talked about a few weeks ago in the Beatitude series, meekness isn't weakness. No, it's, it's having our power under control. It'd be a person who's hard to offend, quick to forgive, and approaches everything with a sense of humility instead of pride. And it's self-control. Self-control is the ability to rightly prioritize my life, where I'm no longer controlled by whatever my flesh desires, by whatever I feel in the moment, but I can rightly prioritize my life and say, God first, others second, myself last. And lastly of all, a life of Christ-like character has to have all, all nine of these virtues, all nine of them. Uh, quick, quick, English lesson. It's not your question. Fruit, is that singular or plural? I know we're digging way back into the third grade English thought bank here, but fruit, singular or plural? No, oh, man, you can, come on, singular or plural? There you go, singular, good. It's singular, you guys got it, not your question. Good job, you get, yeah, awesome. You get the reward. Um, so it's a singular word, but it's described by nine virtues, which means that they're all interconnected. It's like a strand of Christmas lights. One bulb goes out, the whole strand goes down. That's kind of how it is. They're interconnected. 
I once heard a pastor say the importance of it is this. It keeps us on guard for counterfeit fruit in our lives. A lot of the times we think, man, I'm really joyful, but eh, I'm not the most loving. It's like, no, it's, that's not real joy if all of them aren't there because they're interconnected with each other. Instead, there can be counterfeit fruit, which is really our flesh trying to use something good to still satisfy something that we want. It's trying to use the good things for wrong purposes. So think about it this way. Kindness without faithfulness. Kindness without faithfulness. That'd be a person who has a thousand friends. They're really good at complimenting, making you feel like a million bucks. But then if something goes wrong and you give them a call, they're nowhere to be found. Because they're not a real friend. They're not faithful. They just wanted you to like them. They just like being liked. Or how about this? Self-control without love. There's someone in the Bible called Pharisees, right? They had lots of self-control, but they didn't do it because they loved God. They didn't do it because they loved other people. That wasn't real self-control. That wasn't a godly self-control. It was still trying to use it to get something that they wanted. So fruit doesn't come from us trying to pretend that we have these attributes and then really using them to try to gain something to continue our flesh and say, feed my pride, feed my all these other things. This fruit comes from our deepest desires being transformed by the Spirit in our lives and making us have the heart of Christ. I don't know about you, but that life sounds far better than the life of the works of the flesh. I can tell you this, your spouse, your kids, your parents, they would love for your life to be described by this list and not the other list. No one would choose a family member whose life is described by the works of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And when families are built on this type of Christ-like character, they will thrive because we've turned the focus of our lives onto exactly what God wants them to be. We're no longer thinking the spotlight is no longer on ourselves, but we've said, how can I love God? How can I love others? The first and greatest commandment. That's what the fruit of the Spirit helps us live out. And then guess what gets dropped from the equation? How do I love myself? We have to leave that at the door when we start picking up our cross to follow Christ. God wants us to be motivated to pursue that Christ-like character in our lives. And very quickly, I want to talk about some ways that we can actively seek to be sanctified and transformed by the Spirit in our lives. So how can we put that into action? How can we have that method of cultivating Christ-like character? Well, look at verses 24 and 25 real quick. It says this, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So in these two verses, we see two important actions that we need to be making in order to cultivate Christ-like character in our lives. Two things. We need to crucify the flesh, and we need to keep in step with the Spirit. That's really it. Kill the flesh, cling to the Spirit. Those are the ways that's God's prescription for us to embrace Christ-like character in our lives. So first in verse 24, we see that we have to keep our flesh crucified to the cross. So in verse 24, he's talking about a very definitive action that happened at the moment of our conversion. When we repented of our sin and put our faith in Christ, by God's grace, we were able to take that flesh that was within us and crucify it to a cross and nail it to a cross. By God's grace, we were able to do that. It was, its defeat was guaranteed. But guess what? Its death was not instant. Death by crucifixion takes a while. And your flesh, it's going to do everything it can in your heart to wiggle free to pry itself off of that cross, to get back into your heart and build a foothold or a stronghold of sin in your life, it's going to happen. So as Christians, we need to be every day saying, how can I make no provision for sin? How can I keep that flesh crucified? How can I fight the sin in my life? 
Well, the very first thing we need to do, we need to start getting more serious about this in our lives because a lot of the times we're more in the business of sin management than sin eradication. Sin man- we see ourselves more like garbage collectors than exterminators. So garbage collectors, we take the garbage out once it piles up and starts to stink and gets in the way of our life, right? And that's what we do with sin. We let it pile up until, okay, now I'm feeling the consequences. Now something bad. Now let me try to bag this up and get it out. Whereas an exterminator comes in and says, I'm not content until every last part of that is dead and gone and this house is clean. That's what we need to be pursuing in our life. Not managing our sin, but getting rid of our sin. So how can we do that? Well, first, we need to admit sin for what it really is. We're really good at minimizing and excusing sin in our lives. It looks a lot like this. I've just been a little distracted in my spiritual life recently. Or you could say I've been idolatrous in my life recently. Or how about this, man, I just I mess up once in a while when I'm on the internet. Or you could say I, I'm struggling with sexual immorality in my life. Or I just like to embellish my stories a little bit and give them a little extra zip. Or you like to lie. Or how about this? I'm just a social person. I love to just know what, what's going on with everyone else so I can just keep in touch and I just really like to know what's going on in their lives. Or I really like to gossip so I can repeat that to other people. Or how about this? Everyone knows that I'm just a straight shooter. If you talk to me, get ready. I might say something, but I, I just shoot it straight. No, you're critical and unloving. We're really good at excusing our sinful behaviors by calling it other things than sin. We have to stop minimizing it. And when we see that sin in our lives, the second thing, we need to genuinely repent. Repentance is more than feeling bad and saying, ah, man, Andrew, you messed up again. Do better next time. That did nothing because I didn't sin against myself. I sinned against God. I have to go to him and genuinely repent. As first John 1 would say, we have to confess our sin and then he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not just saying, man, do better. It's saying, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me and give me the help to do better next time. Thirst. Third, you could use the uh, garbage in, garbage out principle. What are the things that you're consuming in your life? The music, the shows, the movies, the books, the websites, all those things that fill our downtime. I guarantee us if there's a particular sin we're struggling with, a lot of the times we're feeding it through those avenues. Garbage in, we're going to see garbage out. How many of the things that we invite into our minds and our hearts are centered on the works of the flesh rather than the works of the spirit? See, a lot of the times we look at things wrongly. We say, where's the line that I can't cross before I feel like I'm an awful, terrible Christian? Rather than we should say, where's the line that I can move away from and say, what's most, what's most helpful right now? What's going to help me conform more to the image of Christ? We have to change that mindset of not how close, but how far can I stay, stay away? And then last, I'd say accountability. And you see that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. If anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of of gentleness. We need each other. If you're stuck in sin, if you're having a hard time crucifying a desire of the flesh to the cross again, you need your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to bring that to light. Secrecy is the greatest tool of of sin in the flesh. As long as it's secret, you won't have victory. So those are some practical ways that we can keep from returning to the darkness of our flesh, but What are some ways that we can keep in step with the Spirit, like verse 25? If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's a a helpful verse, but how do we flush that out? Well, because really in our lives, remember, we're not going to be able to have the strength and the power to change this all on our own. Our lives are a lot like, our spiritual lives and growing them is a lot like a sailboat. 
Sailboats don't have motors. They don't have oars. It's not by their own strength that they're going to propel themselves forward. They have a sail. And the way they move forward is by adjusting the sail for the wind to empower it and take it to where it needs to be. That's how our spiritual lives are with the Spirit. We can't just fix ourselves. We have a sail. We need to open up that sail and say, okay, Spirit, fill me, lead me, empower me to take me where I need to be going. So what are the ways that we can do that? Well, the first and greatest one is this, that the spiritual disciplines in our lives. It's a lot like the garbage in, garbage out, gar- good in, good out. We, we crave what we feed. So what are you feeding? What does your, your Bible intake look like? What does your prayer life look like? What does accountability look like? Another one, what does, what does serving the body of Christ look like? One of the greatest ways for you to grow is to, the, the Spirit has gifted you to serve. And when you're doing that, that's going to be awesome. You're going to feed that. You're going to feel God working and changing you and your heart. So what does that look like for you? What's the good you're intaking? Second one might be this, um, just fearless faith in the promises of God. That's another one. There's no room for doubt in our lives. The Spirit thrives when we have faith, even when we're struggling with, with not understanding how God's promises could be. So in a moment of temptation, there's no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. There's a way of escape, saying, okay, God, there's a way of escape. Give me that strength. Spirit, show me the way, rather than saying, that's a lie. I'm just going into sin. If we look at the, the heroes of the faith in Hebrews uh, 11, so many of them, they lived by faith. God loves when we have faith in his promises, and we follow those even when it's hard. And that leads into a third idea, which is this. Just don't, don't rely on your feelings. Choose to do what's right, even when you don't feel like it. It's like a marathon runner. Ask any marathon runner if they really enjoyed the first mile they ever ran. Probably not. Probably not. I'm not a marathon runner because I've never overcome that hurdle, right? I still don't enjoy the first mile, and I don't enjoy a mile 12. But if you ask someone who really gets into running, they didn't love it at first, but they put in the work, and guess what? The feelings followed. God oftentimes works that way. Are you going to be faithful even when the feelings aren't there? There's no other way for us to cultivate Christ-like character in our lives. We have to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. There's no easy button. That's the prescription that God has given us. And this morning, I hope that all of us can see how imperative it is that we're cultivating that type of Christ-like character in our families. So let's walk away from this passage willing to accept the mandate, motivated to go out and do it, and then embracing the method that God has given us to start crafting that character in our lives. Don't be a thermometer in our culture. Be a thermostat and start setting your life to exactly what God commands us to do. So let's close in a word of prayer and then finish out with a song of worship. Father, we're so thankful for this passage and these reminders that you have given us that we need to be cultivating this type of godly character in our lives. And we're so grateful that you haven't left us on our own to do it. You've given us your word. You've given us the spirit. You've given us the power to look more and more like Christ and help us to have that motivation. Help us to see the damage and the brokenness that comes from a life of sin and say, God, I don't want that. We want instead to pursue a life of glorifying and honoring you. God, we are so thankful that we are able to respond to the gospel message and have that transformation happen in our lives because of what, first and foremost, Christ has done for us. So as we think about that now, help us to be able to just respond in a moment of worship and praise you. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks, Pastor Andrew. If you would, why don't we stand and respond to what we